Amen. Thank you, Terry. Uh, so our scripture reading this morning, as we continue our way through the Gospel of Mark, is from Mark chapter 14. We're going to read verses 32 through verses 42. It is the scene uh, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so let's, uh, let's read together. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, it's printed for you in your worship folder or on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it, is on, it should be on your screen as well. So let's read. Beginning of verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? And taking your rest, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word, would you say with me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. So we're getting close to getting close to the pivotal events surrounding Easter. And that's what we're doing. We're kind of going through this as we approach Easter ourselves. So here's my question for you this morning in light of what we just read. What happens to you when you're under pressure? What, what, what happens when you're under a tremendous amount, maybe in more than usual? So I know there's a baseline, but then there are times when there's a spike. What happens when you experience a spike or, or a, a, a big you know, jump in the stress level of your life? Because typically what really is inside gets squeezed out of you when you're under that kind of stress or pressure. Now for me, if you're, if you're still trying to get to know me a little bit, uh, for me, there are really a couple of things. When I get really stressed, when I, when I feel a lot of pressure, the things that start to come out of me are anger. I know you're shocked to, to, to hear that, right? And control, controlling. I become very controlling. But maybe for you, I don't know what it is. Consider it. What, what about you? Is it self-pity? Is it selfishness? What happens to you? See, those things are in there. For me, the anger and the, and the, um, the controlling and, and all that self-pity, it's in there, but I can keep it hidden for the most time. But then there are these moments in life where just to get through life becomes such, a, such an ordeal that you can't really use all that energy to keep those things tamped down. Gethsemane, that word here, means olive press. It was, and it still is to this day, believe it or not, a grove of olive trees. And the olives would be gathered and then ground, and then they would be put into a press to apply an enormous amount of pressure, and the pressure would separate the, the olive oil from the paste, what would become olive paste. So that is the image, that's, that's what this na- the name of this place means, and it's also the image of what is happening to Jesus here. He's being pressed. We know from the other gospel accounts that he endured so much stress in this moment that blood began to seep through his pores. It was a known medical condition. It was the result of crushing, debilitating anxiety and dread. 
And yet, when I, so whatever bad day you have had recently, it is nothing compared to what he's experiencing here. And yet, on my bad days, when I feel particularly stressed or full of anxiety and just pressured, all of those ugly things come out. When Jesus, under that kind of pressure, when he experiences that, what gets squeezed out of him is not selfishness or anger or self-pity or any of those kinds of things. What we're going to see is when Jesus goes into the olive press, what gets squeezed out of him is what is most true of him. What gets squeezed out of him is love. Love for God and a commitment to remain obedient to him no matter what. Love for us and a willingness to suffer and die to rescue us. Now, this is a high a high holy moment in our, in our scriptures and in in the story of our salvation. And so just we're going to be very straightforward and very to the point this morning. But there are two truths that I want you to see from the text about what, what is being revealed about Jesus here and what he's doing. Well, first, he's a doing Savior. I want you to see that he's a doing Savior and he's a dying Savior. He's a dying Savior and he's a doing Savior. It's actually going to be in that order this morning. And then I want to make some applications to each of those. But again... We don't have a lot of time for a lot of frills, probably no funny stories this morning. I'm sorry. Tony's not preaching. I am. You came on the wrong week. He'll be back up here in a few weeks, and he can, he can take care of that for me. But we got to get straight to the point this morning. The dying Savior and the doing Savior. And what I want you to see is the way that what is coming out of Jesus is just love. Love for God, love for us. It's, it's really remarkable. So first, he is a dying Savior. We are saved by his dying. We are all sinners. We're all guilty and condemned before God for doing the things that he has forbidden and for not doing the things that he commands. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. He said, we have turned all of us to our own way, redefining right and wrong according to our feelings. Our selfishness and pride have made a mess of everything. And God said there would be a reckoning. There would be a punishment. But it would not be unfair. It would be justice. It would be what we deserve. And yet in his grace, God gave Jesus to suffer the ultimate consequences of our sins Dying on the cross in our place. We are saved by his dying. That is the basic tenet of Christianity, and it's part of what's happening here. Now, something profound is, in fact, happening here. Look at verse 34. Jesus described it by saying, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Now, that might sound surprising because it means what it says there. Jesus is consumed with sorrow in this moment. He is so overwhelmed by depression that he is wishing for death. He's having a panic attack. I don't think that's overstating it. Jesus Jesus is losing it. He is coming apart here. He is being discomposed in ways that are just not normal. You don't see him acting this way any other place in all of the Bible. So why? What's going on? Well, you might say, well, that's easy. He's obviously... He knew what the next 12 to 18 hours would be like. He would be arrested. He would be badly beaten. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you know what that was like. He would be crucified. It was the last night of his life. Of course, he's falling apart here. But that's the thing. See, if you looked through Christian history, you would find so many martyrs dying for their faith in Christ with supernatural courage and composure. One of my ancestors, Nicholas Ridley, my my um, mother's maiden name was Ridley. He was the Bishop of London. He was, uh, he was martyred by Bloody Mary for being a Protestant. He's one of the guys where the, the um, monument there at Oxford to this day. He was burned at the stake along with Hugh Latimer, who called out as the fire underneath their feet was lit. He said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light 
such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And they died with incredible courage and composure, just like so many hundreds and thousands of martyrs through the centuries. And it begs the question, why then was Jesus so discomposed? What's different about his impending death and the death of Nicholas Ridley that would cause such different reactions in those two? And the answer, of course, is in verse 36, where Jesus refers to the cup. Do you see verse 36? He says, remove this cup from me. That's what he prayed. And the cup, as we've already seen in Jeremiah 25, is a metaphor for God's wrath. Drinking the cup was an image from the Old Testament of judgment. God said to Jeremiah in that text, take the cup of the wine of my wrath and make the nations drink it. And Jeremiah took the cup and he made the nations drink, which just means his ministry, his teaching and preaching ministry was to confront the sins, not only of Israel, but of the surrounding nations as well, and to warn them of the coming judgment And so they would drink the cup, liable to God's judgment because of their rebellion and sin. But here, Jesus is the one drinking the cup. And it's a prophetic fulfillment that says the full divine judgment against all human sin and rebellion, that the judicial wrath of God, it would come down, not upon those who had actually done the sinning, but down upon Jesus, not the nations. He would drink the cup. Which means that the horror of the cross was not the physical anguish. That's not what caused Jesus to lose it here because he knew I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to hang upon a cross and die. It's the cup. It's the torture of divine absence. Because on the cross, you remember, Jesus did not say, oh, it hurts my hands, my feet, right? He, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that was the horror. Isaiah said he would be wounded. He would be stricken, smitten crushed, but not by the physical blows. See, it was the spiritual reality, far more devastating than having nails driven through your hands and feet. The God forsakenness that he endured. It says in Isaiah, God laid on him all of our sins and divine justice came down. Hell itself and all God's anger against sin stored up through all the centuries. The blow of his justice came down on Jesus, not us. That's the cross. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, not just physical death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. That's what awaits Jesus on the cross, and that's why he's falling apart. But here's the thing. Jonathan Edwards has a famous sermon on the Gethsemane text, and he suggested that in some sense what must be happening here is Jesus was getting a preview of the true suffering of the cross ahead of time. He Something There was something revealed to him here. He got a sense of what was awaiting him when he, you know, in the next few hours of his life. And just the sense of it, not the actual experience of it, just the dread of it created such shock, such violent anxiety and fear and dread that the capillaries under his skin exploded and he began to sweat blood. Now, if, if the sense of it created that reaction, what what do you think the the reality of it would do? Now, let's make some applications. Let's make some applications. And the first one I would say is you, in light of this text and what we've already read in the service, you have to come to terms with the idea of God's wrath against sin. Wrath is not God flying off the handle. It is his settled disposition towards all that destroys what he loves. B.B. Warfield, in fact, he said this. He's a Princeton theologian in the 20th, late 20th century. He said, 
It would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of evil, indifferent and unmoved. Precisely what it means to be a moral being is to be a being perceptive of the difference between right and wrong and reacting appropriately to right and wrong. Anger, then, even wrath, he said, belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being. They cannot be lacking. Now, do you hear what he's saying? That's very important and, and very true. He's saying, if you're a moral person... Then, then anger is going to be a part of the range of emotions that you experience. And it's not, anger's not wrong. A lot of times, anger's the exact thing you should be experiencing. And if you love, the more you love, the more reasons you're going to find yourself to be, to be angry. And if Jesus, who was the true moral being, the most moral being there ever was, you know, as the self-revelation of God himself, then we should expect that God is, in fact, the God of wrath and not take umbrage with that, but to realize, no, that's a part of his beauty and his perfection and his glory. That he would look at the things destroying what he loves and not say, oh, you know what, no big deal, but to say, no, I'm against that. The way you, as parents who love your children, would be against everything that threatens the destruction of your children. If not, you're not a good parent. You can't claim to love your kids if that's not the case. And if it's true for you, then it's true for God himself. But then Understand something about what is being revealed about God's wrath. Tim Keller said it so well. I think he said, the sinful human heart wants to get away. It wants to be away from God. And so the way God punishes sin is to give the heart what it wants. In other words, the ultimate punishment and destruction that God can pass down is to be cut off from his presence because we are the flower and he is the sun and the rain. And without him, we wither and die. And so Come to terms with God's wrath. If just the hint of it sent Jesus into shock, can you imagine the horror and the agony of having a firsthand experience of God's wrath? And then do you realize what the Bible teaches is for every one of us in this room, that is what our sins deserve. And it is our future, unless we put our faith and trust in Jesus. But secondly, just another application very quickly, if your faith is in Christ, man, then here's the good news. If your faith is in Jesus, then there is no cup for you. There's no cup for you to drink. Jesus drank it down to the dregs. The wrath of God has been satisfied. That's why Nicholas Ridley could stare down his death with such courage and composure, and all the other martyrs too, because they knew. They knew what Paul says in Romans 8, which we'll get to read this week. I can't wait. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, do you realize what a booing truth that is? Nothing... There is no condemnation if you put your faith in Jesus. No condemnation on the other side of that. There is nothing that can separate us from God's love. Because Jesus died in our place. And he was raised on the third day as proof that God's justice has been satisfied. And he now stands at the right hand of God in heaven interceding for us. And those are the things that Nicholas Ridley knew. He knew them down at the core of his being. And it's why he could die the way he did. And you can live and you can die with the same courage and the same composure. But know this, there is a Gethsemane for you. There is an olive press. It's just part of living in a fallen world as a sinful person. There is an olive press that you will have to endure. But here's what you can be absolutely sure of. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then your Gethsemane might be reminiscent of his, but it will also be very different than his because there will be no cup for you. And so you can face it with courage and composure because there's no cup. He faced, he endured, he drank the cup 
so that you wouldn't have to. He is the dying Savior. Isn't that great news? Oh, hey, it gets better. Because he's not just the dying Savior, he's also the doing Savior. We're saved by his doing, too. Because if you ask people, you know, how, how, how did God save you? What do you do? And typically the answer you're going to get if you ask people that, even people that have been in the church for a long time, is they'll say something like, well, God sent Jesus to die upon the cross for my sins so that I could be forgiven. And that's true. And it's a wonderful truth, but it's really only half truth because the full gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died the death that God owed to you because of your sins so that you could be forgiven, yes. But he also lived the life that you owe to God so that you could be righteous in God's sight. And that's important because if you only have the first and this is what i see in a lot of people paul miller first diagnosed this and i've just I've, it's it's borne itself out in pastoral ministry for the past 20 years or so he said if you think only the first is true but not the second you don't have a keen sense of the second then what happens is, is you might live with the sense that god accepts you and he puts up with you and he forgives you you know he gave you a second chance you get a do-over what it might be but that's it. The second part means, though, that it's better than that, that God doesn't just accept you and kind of put up with you and, okay, I, Jesus died for him. I got to deal with him. Yeah. No. If the second is true, then God delights in you. You are perfect. You have a record of righteousness that can't be ruined by any bad you do, and it can't be improved by any good that you do. We're saved by his doing, but we're all dying, but we're also saved by his doing. Now, notice the contrast, and this is what really comes out here between the disciples and Jesus here, <laughs> three times he goes away to pray. Three times he came back and he found the disciples sleeping. He told them, verse 38, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And it is a reminder of the promises and the resolutions they had all made at the meal earlier in the evening. Do you remember Jesus said, you're going to betray me? And they said, no, 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 not us. And Peter said, listen, the rest of these idiots, I don't know about them, but I promise no matter what, I'm going to die with you. And here it's about two hours later and they already can't stay awake and do what he's asked them to do. He predicted their cowardice and betrayal and they all vowed their loyalty, Peter most of all. And yet here, here they're already failing. Peter, already failing. He had good intentions, but his follow-through was terrible. Now, that sounds familiar. That sounds a lot like me. The Apostle Paul put it like this. He said, I can never seem to do the things I want to do, and I can't stop doing the things I don't want to do. Yep. That's about right. Our spirit itself says here might be willing, but our flesh is weak. In other words, we know it's right. We might even have a true desire to do the right thing, but then we go ahead and we do the wrong thing instead. And that is the experience of every saint. Can I say that again? That is the experience of every saint, because every saint is still a sinner. Here's something for you to really you know, contemplate. You can be a sinner without being a saint, but you can't be a saint without being a sinner. You, can't, you can be a sinner without being a saint, but you can't be a saint without also at the same time being a sinner. We are not capable of the kind of obedience God is deserving of because no matter how far we might progress towards being willing, and in some cases, even able, we are never without the weakness of the flesh that causes whatever love for God and others we might muster to fall short. It's a picture of the way we fail so many times. But look at how different Jesus is. Jesus got a preview in his soul of the agony that awaited him on the cross, and yet he did not shrink back. He didn't abort. It says in one of the other Gospels that he could have called on legions of angels to help him, and they would have, but he didn't. He didn't give in to self-pity. He pushed through 
the crushing dread and anxiety he, fe- he felt. And instead, look at verse 26. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. That's a wow moment. Now, big picture. Big picture first, just in consideration of of Jesus' prayer there. There's a lot going on here. And you got to take in the whole scope of, of the whole revelation of God in the scriptures. Think about it this way. God came to the first man, the first Adam, in Genesis, right? In a garden, the Garden of Eden. And he said to that first man, don't eat from the tree. If you obey me about the tree, you will live. I will bless you. I will reward you. And the man disobeyed God. He disobeyed God in regards to the tree. And that is the story of sin, not just the origin story. It is the ongoing story of human rebellion. But here, God came to the second man, to the second Adam, in a garden. This time, the Garden of Gethsemane, not a paradise, a horror show, a house of horrors. And he said, they're going to nail you to a tree. But if you obey me about the tree, you will die. I will curse you. I will send you to hell. And Jesus obeyed. And that is our salvation. See, sin began in a garden where the first Adam said, not your will, but mine be done. And every one of our lives and all the choices that we make are often just an echo of that first prayer. Not your will, God, mine be done. Salvation, though, was accomplished in another garden where the second Adam said, not my will, yours be done. And the question, of course, is why? Why, why would Jesus, you know, how do you, where does that come from? Like, how, how, why would Jesus obey like that? And the first thing you should notice from the prayer, verse 26 Okay, and we're treading on kind of mysterious things, holy things here, but I'm going to say it this way anyway. But if you look at verse 26, the first thing that stands out is the hesitation. Maybe, that, maybe that's not the right word. I don't know. But, but there's nothing robotic about Jesus' obedience here. He was honest. Do you see what he says? Father, all things are possible for you. Like, you can do whatever you want. And so he says, because, you know, I know that you can do whatever you want, so I have an idea. Can you take this cup from me? Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I mean, Jesus did not shut off his emotions. Look at all the emotions. So much he's feeling here, but then he acted against his emotions, and that's the point. He wanted the Father to remove the cup, to find some other way. That's very clear, but there was something he wanted even more than that that caused him to go through with it, even when part of him didn't want to. It's not that there was no will in him. There's no selfishness in him. He submitted his will. He didn't do his own will. He came not to do his own will. Unlike every one of us in all the parts of our lives where all we're doing is going about doing our own will. Here's one who came, and from the very beginning he said, I have not come to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And that is love. That's what I mean by love. So Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, you, you would understand. You would understand if Jesus, after three times finding the disciples asleep, if you might have thought this. Here are Jonathan Edwards' words. He said, why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go and cast myself into such a furnace for them that could never repay me for it? Why should I yield myself thus to be crushed by the weight of divine wrath for them who have no love for me? But he didn't think that. That's not what came into his mind. So why not? And here, here Edwards just soars, I think. He says, the anguish of Christ's soul 
at that time was so strong as to cause the effects on his body, but his love to his enemies, poor and unworthy, was stronger still. The heart of Christ at that time was full of distress, but fuller of love. His sorrows abounded, but his affection did much more abound. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of sin. Those great drops of blood, Edward says, were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. Isn't that great? And because he lived from an ocean of love for God and for other people, he prayed... Not my will, but what you will. And that prayer is not just a moment. That prayer encapsulates the entirety of his whole life. But especially his approach to these, to these fateful events here at the very end. Hebrews 12.2, it says this, that, that there was a joy. For the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. In other words, there was a joy he could, as the way that he could peer into what was just in front of him and, and sense the dread of what was coming, there was also a sense in which he could peer into on the other side of his death and see that there was a joy on the other side of all of that horror and dread that was so great that it pulled him into and through the cross. There was a joy that was so great that it made the cross a little thing. It made the cross a minor thing in comparison to the joy that he was anticipating. And that joy was God and sinners reconciled. Those loved by the Father back home with the Father. It was the thing, it was the joy that consumed Jesus' heart. To so please his Father and so see those he loved back at home with the Father whom he loved. So when you believe in his dying and in his doing, here's what happens. Then your sins get credited to his account and his righteousness gets credited to yours. So when he died on the cross, it's as if you died yourself. And when he voiced this prayer to God, it was as if it came from your lips. He took the record of your sin and died. You get the record of your, his righteousness. That's the Christian gospel. He's a dying savior. He's a doing savior. And both are important. Both are important and both are crucial. Now, some applications here too. Because I told you, we have to be really straightforward and kind of to the point this morning. But first... See how Jesus is a model for our obedience here. There's a difference between temptation and sin. Jesus was tempted, it says in Hebrews 4, but he did not sin. So there are feelings and then there's behavior. And obedience is often a matter of acting against the feelings and desires that you have that are harmful. Which, oh, our culture is becoming less, we're producing people who are less and less able to do that. To act against feelings for the sake of the good things, saying no to yourself. The culture, says, the culture says, be true to yourself. Christianity says, deny yourself. And here Jesus shows us the way. But secondly, he's not only the model for our obedience here, he's also the model for our prayers. That one sentence prayer that Jesus offers is what all good prayer sounds like. And it starts with being emotionally honest. The way he was, you don't shut down your heart by skipping to the not my will. Don't you hear people do that? Like, Oh, oh, God, you know, you get the cancer diagnosis, but the first prayer that comes out of you is not my will. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the way to go. That's, that's where you should end up eventually. But the way you do it is you start, you start by, by how you feel. God invites you to say, how, you know, how do you feel about this? And so you ask. You don't say, oh, I don't want that. I, don't, I want no part of that in my life. Don't, don't give me that. I'm ticked off about that. What's going on? You ask and you emote and you do these things and then you allow God to shape your asking and you allow him to deal with your feelings. You start by being honest about how you feel and then you allow God to change how you feel. 
Because prayer often begins with asking God for the things you need to be okay in life. There's no shame in that. He invites us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. So you begin by asking God for the things that you need to be okay in life. But as prayer deepens, it becomes the process of becoming okay with whatever God's doing in your life. Because he's all you need. That's where you end up. That's where you want to ultimately finish. But you have to get started first. And here Jesus shows us the way to get started. He is the model for our obedience and the model for our prayers. He is the dying Savior, and he is the doing Savior. C.S. Lewis, Lewis said, there are two kinds of people in the end, only two. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, the way Jesus does here. And there are those to whom God says, thy will be done. That's really what's at stake. And if you want to know, if you want a glimpse into which of those is true of you, then go back to the question that I asked at the beginning. What happens to you when you're under pressure? Whatever comes out of you in those moments is what is most true of you. You can know a lot about yourself if you just start, stop and think, okay, when I'm really under a lot of weight, when there's a lot of stress, the real me comes out. And what is that? But don't be afraid of what you find. Because, of course, salvation is about, isn't about you being the right kind of person or having the right kind of response to whatever that stressful moment is. It is about you turning from yourself and trusting in this one, the dying Savior and the doing Savior. Uh, the song we sang earlier, I love uh, one of the verses where it says, uh, and it really is the mystery of this text, how, it says, how in that garden he persisted I may never fully know. Isn't that the truth? Like, how in the world? How in that garden he persisted, I may never fully know. The fearful weight of true obedience, that was held by him alone. That is the good news of the gospel. What wondrous faith to bear that cross, to bear my sin, what wondrous love. My hope was sure when there my Savior prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. All Our whole salvation is bound up in Jesus praying that prayer to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. Because that prayer is an expression of all that he would do in being a dying Savior in a doing Savior for those who have faith in him. So let's pray uh, this morning together as we come to the Lord's table this morning. So Father, increase our faith. We would say to you, we believe, but there are ways that we are still unbelieving, so help our unbelief. We believe, but there are ways that we are still, even in our emotional lives, uh, there is a theology of the gospel, but there's a psychology of the gospel, and there are ways that the psychology of our souls, our emotions, our feelings, um, the way we go about life is not caught up to the things we believe yet. And so we ask, even as we stare at you and, and gather around this table to eat with you, that we would need for you to come and, and take these truths, the truth of the dying Savior, the truth of the doing Savior, and drive it home to our hearts that we might have a deepener, deepening faith and a deepening repentance and trusting in you and on ourselves. And then that all of the, the relief and the joy and the booing effect of knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that it would come rushing into our hearts and lives, that we might live with the kind of composure and courage that so many before us have in our living and in our dying, that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love that song, and it does so well encapsulate the kind of obedience that, um, that, that Jesus wants from us and calls us to when he says, take up my cross and follow you. But it helps me, it helps me to think uh, that whatever, when we sing it, we're singing it as an echo of the one who sang it before us.
Uh, it helps me to think of those are the words, those are, those are Jesus' own words of worship to the Father in his own life. Uh, the, life we lives, the lives we live are derivative of his life. That is the Christian gospel. The courage and the composure to live, taking seriously the things we just saying, come from knowing that there is one who has made it possible for us that no matter what comes, distress, nakedness, sword, peril, heights, depths, nothing in all of heaven and earth, that nothing can separate us from the love of the Father. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then you be confident of that. That's what these words of benediction mean. So as you go, taking your cross to follow him, you go knowing that his face and his smile are yours because of all the, the dying and the doing that Jesus has, has accomplished for you, okay? So receive these words of benediction then and go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.